This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. And we're going to talk about the Zap Gun, a 1967 novel by Philip K. Dick. First published in a magazine called Worlds of Tomorrow from, when was it? Uh, uh, as Project Plowshare um, in 1965, 1966. Yeah. What were you going to say, Paul? Yeah, the, the, I believe the actual novel is 1967. Yeah, the, the issuing of the novel was 67, but I, I don't think there's any difference textually, or much anyways, between the serial and the publication in, in book form. Um, but apparently one of the things that we're missing is the original outline. Um, it's not on the Philokadic fans website. sounds like because of, you know, just greedy copyright reasons or whatever, but, um, pyramid books who is like a paper book publisher competing with ACE and uh, a whole bunch of other ones. They're a paperback publisher. Apparently, had um, a publisher who thought, I know what would be a great idea for a book, science fiction book called The Zap Gun. And the uh, agents for Philip K. Dick said, hey, you want to write this? And he wrote an outline, and then apparently the outline has very little to do with, yeah. with, with the book. And uh, if you had contracted somebody to write a science fiction novel called The Zap Gun, would you accept this as a, a fulfillment of that? <laughs> Well, I would. <laughs> you would, okay? Oh yeah. my god, yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's I, not I quite like, what I expect. No, yeah. I mean, the, but the name is awful. If I gave someone it's the terrible. name, yeah, if I, I gave someone the name the Zap Gun and told them to write a, a novel, I would expect so much less in this. <laughs> <laughs> this would be like, yeah. oh my god, you, this is perfect. Well, I think I think that that's part of uh, part of the what Philip K. Dick did with it is he said that is an awful title i mean yeah i write science fiction and i know awful when i hear it that's all <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is definitely that mood to it where it's kind of like a um a little bit of anger <laughs> sort of making fun of itself but in an well, almost angry way it is yeah it's it is i mean that's uh, the kind of title that uh people who don't read science fiction uh, you know, don't have uh, a love in their heart for it, uh, yeah. would say, oh, you read that Zap Gun fiction. I would never like have that. read this if if I wasn't, like, on the podcast with you guys or, like, reading a whole bunch of Philip K. Dick and running out of things to read. I would right. never pick up a book called Zap Gun. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is really cool, and it's not on the Wikipedia entry, but uh, there's a subtitle to this book. It is in the Pyramid publications and uh, some of the uh, subsequent paperback and hardcover publications, and it reads, uh, being the most excellent account of travails and containing many pretty histories by him set forth in comely colors and most delightfully discoursed upon as beautiful and well-furnished, diverse, good, and commendable in the gashite of men <laughs> of the most lamentable weapons fashion designer Lars Powderdry and what nearly became of him due to certain most dreadful forces. That sounds very Bansy and sort of something. <laughs> well, that's that's a very 19th century subtitle. Exactly. Like, uh, yeah. uh, 
it's it's almost like the one for uh, Edgar Allan Poe's uh, uh, the narrative of A. Gordon Pym of Nantucket, right? Oh yeah, I remember it, that. It has the the same style of spelling, so containing is uh, with a Y, right? Histories is with a Y. Set forth is F O O R T H. Comely colors. Is it a type? Is it typed in nineteenth century type? Typography? Italics, yeah. italics with capitalization on. You know, it's it's <laughs> wow. It's um, it it's also I believe this is the same thing. It's not even is it nineteenth century? It's Jonathan Swift, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the Gulliver's Travels uh sort of intro as well, right? Huh. It's exactly the same style of subtitle, and I think this is that kind of book. I don't know if it works all the way through that way. It's got a lot of Philip K. Dick still just regular Philip K. Dick novel in it, but I think it's um, uh, a pretty good satire. Oh yeah. He's, he's absolutely positively training his guns on the cold war and the arms race and living forth with both barrels. But of course, since it's Philip K. Dick, we can't just have that. We have to throw in time travel and other weird things. Aliens because well, from and, and, and aliens from Sir- slavers from Sirius. <laughs> Not even just aliens; they're here to enslave us. That's 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 a, that's a nice little extra detail. So he has to throw in. He can't just have just the the arms race be satirized. He has to put in everything else because that's the way his brain works. Yeah, he has to have boobs in there too. Don't forget the boobs. <laughs> of oh God, yes. So many Although boobs. more than one boob, that's illegal. One one naked boob is perfectly legal. <laughs> Two boobs, completely illegal. Uh, it's, and it's um, it's funny too because I think uh that that character, the cartoonist, is probably the most analog for Dick in in, in this book. He's he's the fount from which all uh, reality is sort of deriving itself. Mm-hmm. Right, the way the um <laughs> the plot in this is, I I gotta tell you, it's pretty terrible. Philip K. Dick's uh, own assessment, he calls this book a turkey. <laughs> uh, I think he's being unkind about his own work. I, uh, but he especially points out to the first half, and I gotta tell you, I uh, a friend of mine uh couldn't finish it, couldn't get through the first half, and I was not loving it in the first half. Oh. But I think I think it does redeem itself in the end. I think the writing. Sort of, he does that trick at the end where um, he sort of makes the novel work somehow. Um, but I found it, yeah, I wasn't super engaged with it in the first half. That's funny. I I really liked it. Yeah, I I, I had a feeling you would. <laughs> yeah, I was really enjoying it, and I also found um, Philip K. Dick also says at another time mm-hmm. this is the book that he would want to survive World War Three along with a. Uh, What's the other one? Penultimate Truth, I think. Mm-hmm. So he he also he always says got like contradictory things like that, right? Like I hated it, I hated this book, and then another time he's like, it's my favorite. That's the, well, the I think that is a very Dickian sort of perspective. I love it. Yeah. I hate it. Which day of the week yeah. is yeah. it? Well, I think um what they said on uh, the Phil Kiddick's website, like as a sort of an apology. Uh, to why scholars should ignore that those comments uh-huh. is because they said, uh, okay, here's um, a letter. Uh, there's only 
There's one in my own experience with him. When I interviewed Phil in 1981, I told him the Zap Gun seemed like self-parody to me. When we discussed the book again, he brought up the self-parody idea, which he didn't like, and attributed it to a writer, to the, to it, uh, a writer he was then irritated at. So, um, he does this confabulation, right? Where he sort of gets an, an idea comes to him in the same way that it comes to uh, the main character of this book. Mm-hmm. I right? just sort of in a drug trance, the half dream state, right? And then he meditates upon it, and then he thinks that that it's it was his originally. And then um, he does he he does take on he's like an emotional sponge, right? That's the that's the whole premise of the book. Even at the end, um, that the weapon, right? The new weapon, it it's so emotionally engaging. <laughs> it sucks you into yeah. <laughs> it. You can't escape. Become like as in a psycho. I don't know. It's not psychotic state. What was it? Some sort of uh, disintegration of the mind or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that technique, he. Uh, well, I'm calling it a technique. Maybe that theme where um, a person becomes so involved in an artificial world that they are sucked into it never to be seen again in the real world yeah. is a very deep theme running through a lot of his stuff. We haven't seen it in a while. Yeah. Uh, I also thought it was funny. I don't know if it's, if I'm just joining dots, but um, that at the end, the guy, Don Packard, who we just kind of see this random scene where he's sucked into the, into mm-hmm. this fictional world as well. And um, disintegrates is, named the same as the editor who asked him to write this book yeah. <laughs> like the first name <laughs> don don Congdon. yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was just wondering if that was like a little dig at him like right I'm the sure end. <laughs> he's biting the hand that feeds him but, th- but then he also throws in names that have have meaning like our main character is mm-hmm. lars powder dry oh, what is he doing he's making fake weapons that everyone thinks works but it's really just plowshares and then of course we have the uh the the little who would be fascist? Uh, Surly G. Krabs? Yeah, Fibs. 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 Thank you. Uh, That's like... Don't forget Paul F. for fungus. <laughs> Didn't you, did you fungus. That? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <Epifungus>. <laughs> um The names were so good in this novel. I think that's why I was enjoying the first half so much. I was it is. loving all the names. That's also very Swiftian, right? Where um, every, every person you meet in... Uh, in Gulliver's Travels is an analog for someone in the real world. Um, and there's a special word. This, I, I guess I had heard it and never really uh, connected it to it. But in the 19th century, there was a real popular French um, movement. I think it might have been even 18th century and earlier, um, where they called it a novel with a key, a Romano clef. Mm-hmm. And what it was is it's it's a novel of manners, right? And it has all sorts of weird things going on. But every character in the novel has an analog in the real political world. And so you need to have like a, a piece of paper that goes in the front of the book that tells you who is what. Oh, right? Wow. So that, right. Um, that, that, that key unlocks all the things going on in it. And you can see... Um, Phil, I, one of the, I guess the problem I had with the first half of the book is I don't think Philip K. Dick is at his best when he's talking about people who have real power. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, when he's talking about presidents and, uh, you know, UN councils and that's, I think he just does, he's sort of out of his depth because he's the guy who doesn't really have a regular job. He lives at home and mm-hmm. he's in a little shack and he drinks coffee and he gets the newspaper and he takes the bus. He sits on park benches and you see a lot of that sort of going on in here. <laughs> a park, there's a park bench in this one, I noticed. Um, yeah, where, where Surly meets, Furley, Surly meets the veteran from the future. Although right. We don't yeah. know he's from the future at that point. Yeah. Right. And that, that sort of the park be- bench action aspect. <laughs> Philip K. Dick's novels is you or writing is usually, you know, the extent of where I think his powers are at their height. Um, however, um, I think that this book is all about politics. And so when he starts, once you sort of get past the tone, like I think if I'd, I, I had had that subtitle um, in the audiobook, that would have helped me. Um, I would say, oh, OK, I know what I'm getting now. Right. Because I thought uh, this is just another straight ahead. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of his books have comedy in them and they're humorous, but they also sort of have uh, plots that are less um, intricate in this. I don't know. There's something wrong with the with the, the plotting if you look at it as a straightforward thing. But if you start looking at it as a satire of the 1960s Cold War politics and what even today sort of the the in group and the out group uh-huh. which is what the cogs and what what are the what are the regular the uh, pure pure, yeah. pure pure saps is what it is right mm-hmm. they're they're complete saps they're getting um they're getting the wool pulled over their eyes as mm-hmm. it were this is um and i think i started to clue into it when the mention of 1984 comes up. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that in a little bit more detail. Because this is um, his sort of take on 1984. uh, Post-war, the United States has become a superpower with a sort of a collaboration with the enemy, where the enemy and the superpower of the United States get together and they say, yep, Let's scam our people. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty interesting uh, thing, but it's not super obvious at first, I didn't find. So is that where you guys clued into sort of what was going on, or were you in earlier than that? By, 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 by the time 1984 was thing, I had, I had figured out, okay, this, this is going on pure and utter satire of the Cold War. And it, it, it it's almost as like Philip K. Dick read 1984 at some point. And thought, okay, I can, I can twist this and make this a satirical world, and people will buy it because you have, you have the same sort of class divisions as in 1984. You have, mm-hmm. you have the the whole fiction of basically the whole fiction of the conflict. I mean, in 1984, you have a three sided conflict that okay, every so often a bomb drops off, but other than that. The, the war doesn't really affect people and and you have you have you have the inner party which is obviously the people who right. know the uh know that the that there is no real war then you have the outer party which is most of the rest of the cogs and then you have the perhaps the rest of humanity who don't really matter or care and 
sometimes when they rise to the surface, things can happen. But even then, they get submerged, like the whole story of of a uh, of Surly F F Krebs and his and, and he thinks he knows what's going on, but he he has not a real clue. And the part of the satire and the humor is just is to say he's a such a caricature and such and such a um, self self deluded and I mean we lose him for a good chunk of the last half of the novel which which made me sad. It's like you can't get rid of Surly. I wanna see I want I want some closure on this and we finally do, which is which which made me happy because his through line is important to this novel and the and is the uh the key to the Roman Cleft to understanding that this yeah, this <laughs> is a this is a, this is a satire on the Cold War through and through with uh, elements of other uh, more traditional Dickian themes. I I, uh, I wanted to um, uh, say you know by the end I was I was on board with the book I I was not able to really fully engage with it at first I found my mind wandering away because I'm like yeah there's a lot of sort of uh acronyms for no reason <laughs> oh yeah and, and then by the end i'm like no i i am on board and uh the point where i'm like no this is this is actually a good book it's hard to get into at first if you don't have that subtitle if you don't know sort of how to look at it in the right way because i mean this is why people the, remember that article that came out i guess since we last had a show um uh, about is Philip K. Dick a bad writer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You guys read that article? Yeah. Um, I I really liked it. I thought it was uh, exactly, you know, the title is one of those ones that makes you read it, get angry, and then, no, you read it. It's, <laughs> no, he's right. Whoever wrote this is right. Because he's, uh, he's yeah, he's, he can write clunkily, but it, it is not, um, that's that's not usually the, the, the issue he's just doing his own thing more than more than anything but by the end um i was totally on board this is from i guess the second to last chapter um <laughs> so it goes febs was that unhampered unbureaucratically restricted elected leader of of their clandestine political revolutionary type organization which after long debate had titled itself menacingly the B-O-C-F-D-U-T-C-R-B-A-S-E-F-E-B-F-I-N, or the benefactors of constitutional freedoms denied under the contemporary rule by a small elite by force if necessary cell 1 <laughs> oh god yeah and in the 1980s, right, after uh, – 1980s, after World War II, um, everybody started sort of – this has always been a theme in in the United States, you know, the FBI – this is your FBI, right? And uh, we, we go through the acronym explosion after World War II where it just keeps, you know, organizations that – they just keep expanding and the BF, BATF, right? <laughs> and they, and NATO, everybody needs to know about NATO. What's NATO? Okay. You got to sort of learn all these acronyms and mad. Why don't they just say mutually assured destruction, right? Yeah. Because you're a cog if you know all of these, these acronyms. And that, that is the reins of power, mm-hmm. we think. But, um, I like that the world is taken apart 
right? I get the sense that at the end of the novel, everybody's having these things delivered to them, right? That they're all ending up man in the maze, if that's if that's the right verb for it. Hmm. All the all the all the uh, people who were the, in, the uh, cogs, I guess, as as it were. Yeah, except for Lars himself. Yeah. Um, because the guy, uh, what's his name? Victor Klug. Mm-hmm. The, um, because he was, he was sort of, he adored Lars and maybe the other dude as well, right? There was like that scene where he's like, you, you guys cannot die. You're the only cogs who are working with love. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I feel like, um, I don't know if he went, yeah, if he went and killed everyone else, but maybe those guys. Well, he's, not, he's not killing them. Right, he's he's yeah. Sorry, disintegrating their minds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, they're in a mental as- uh, asylum, being yeah. fat. You know, maybe wearing a straight jacket, maybe not. Um, I think there's there's uh, it's sort of Philip K. Dick's sort of thumbing his nose at at the fact that everybody has to learn all these acronyms and mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the things that uh, I thought about is. How there's a lot of etymology in this book, you know. Like I like, oh my, yeah, I like the etymology. But every once in a while, people are just. Uh, I, I guess he does this a lot, but it just seemed like a little more than he usually does. Um, he says, "Do you know the uh, origin of the Anglo-Saxon word air? <laughs> <laughs> it comes from the Greek keritas, which itself is a translation of uh, agape, <laughs> which has no." A literal meaning in English. However, <laughs> it is best translated as a reverence for life. <laughs> it's like, why is that in there? Well, it's necessary for the plot because that is the point of the book is when you have all these acronyms, you feel like you're in the reins of power. You, uh, you can deploy the FBI and the CIA and the NSA and the CIA and the BATF and the, the DEA and the, uh, Bureau of, uh, uh of uh, Homeland Security and right, all of these acronyms you have at your disposal um, are for public show, right? But we in the know, you know, it's just a little small family, right? And we got to – so I, I was thinking about, especially in the latter half of the book, about how – there is there is this thing where there is the public show. You remember, uh, maybe Marissa, I don't know if you're old enough, but in the 80s, uh, were you alive in the 80s? I was alive in the 80s. Were you? Uh, <laughs> I was young. You I was... yourself as a being? Or were you just in diapers? How old uh, are you? Well, I was born in 78, so I was like oh, okay. a child. Yeah. A... yeah, you would have been barely aware, maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, Paul, you must be. Uh, I, I was born in '71, so yeah. So you're right in the same period as I am, where um, every once in a while Reagan would like have a meeting with Gorbachev, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And they, Iceland you know, they, and whatnot. Right, right. They'd have they'd have sit down. They'd have a nice press conference. They'd shake each other's hands. Maybe they'd go to Camp David, right? Um, and we got the sense that they're sort of on the same team. <laughs> we know they're not on the same team, but they're good sportsmen, right? And they're they're making sure no foul play will happen. And, you know, behind the scenes, maybe they, they're a little more aggressive with each other, but everybody's on the same team and, and everything's cool. Um, it, when speeches happen, especially during an election, you know, it's the evil empire. Um, 
we want to get some movement happening here. Tear down but, this wall. Right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, but you have the sense that when, when, uh, even at the height of, of the dangers, there was this sense that, uh, oh, well, they're getting along pretty well on TV. Right. So us who are not in the know are comforted by the fact that, yeah, we have all these weapons that we're not going to use. Um, and luckily we can tell they're not going to be used because of the way, um, the, the people talk to each other, which is, which is really kind of nice. Um, they, you know, they're communists and yet they're, you know, they like coffee too and like golfing or whatever it is <laughs> they do at Camp David, right? We get a sense that everything's okay. Um, that sense is, is, uh, gone, I think, with, uh, Putin, right? Nobody gives Putin any love oh. on the American side anymore. Except Trump. Except for Trump. And what's so amazing about that is why, <laughs> why should he love them? Um, he should hate them. Well, he loves them because, uh, he envies their power. He says, that's a strong man. I know a strong man when I see him. It's like Hitler <laughs> admiring Mussolini, right? Um, but I, I get the sense that, that Putin is, would totally be friendly if the United States was friendly. And it seems like the United States is just sort of saying, we don't need to play that game anymore because your weapons are null. Hmm. And the thing is, is of course they're not null. They haven't been plowshared, right? Right. Some of them maybe have here and there, but the, this whole society in this novel is ridiculous because every every weapon that is immediately made is immediately pl- plowshared, right? And they're turned into novelty items. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, children's they, they toys and whatnot. Children's toys and uh, advice-giving owls. Oh, right? yeah. The, the yeah. So Raisin heads, right? Uh, all sorts of ridiculous um, Philip K. Dick sort of android living creatures that could potentially explode at any moment, but are actually safe for some reason. Um, and the fact that weapons are fashion, right? Which in, in the sixties, right? That's what they, there was always a new new coming, right? There was the, first it was the a bomb and then it was the H bomb. And then there was tactical nukes and there was battlefield, uh, artillery fireable nukes. And there was, uh, cruise missiles and right. Mm, So was it kind of, uh, celebrated like these new technologies and exactly yeah you'd see the newsreel footage of the new developments right and there's always something yeah. new and that would never get used right uh, aside consider you've seen the first iron man movie right mm-hmm. the the whole tony stark showing up his weapons is very 60s and considering that his father was right. his power in the 60s he's emulating his 60s father's sort of mentality and uh appearance you know like look look at these shiny new weapons the jericho that is is so very 60s uh one one of the i mistakes i just watched the iron man civil no captain america civil war movie i it sort of bugged me ever since uh, that whatever iron man movie if you remember tony stark is like yeah this this is a weapon too powerful to be given to the military yep and then this, basically, I guess in the next movie, he gives <laughs> one of them to the military. Well, and so or, there's or, this or, other or, character named War Machine who yep. is like an Iron Man with big cannons on his shoulder, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's still around, still showing up, sort of just doing Tony Stark with camouflage on, right? 
<laughs> that's that might be the one sentence best description of Iron, Iron War Machine I've ever heard. Uh, Iron Man with camouflage on. Yeah, it's sort of just it, it's a it's a legacy of the fact that they have done so many Iron Man movies and and they have to keep having stuff for them to do. But Tony Stark was against that whole idea of of. Uh, Right, I am the proliferate. Right, the, the the suit and I are one. Yeah, he he resisted terribly the idea of becoming an asset for the military. He wanted to be his exactly. own man. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so uh, there is this tension, even in sort of popular movies of today, of you know just sort of over militarizing um, everything in society. Mm-hmm. But again, the. Superheroes are sort of, and I guess that's where comics tie into it, right? And this, this is the only book I've read of Dick's that had comics so explicitly, um, at the forefront, mm, right? Uh, and you know, he was he had read comics as a kid. I don't think he kept up with them, but one of the things that has to happen in comics is that for every superpowered hero you create, you have to create a superpowered villain because they need to balance each other out. You can't, um, you know, Batman in the first issue, he's fighting the gangs, right? And Superman, he can fight the KKK on the radio. But then after that, who's left? So you have to start making up communist agencies that don't exist in the same way that James Bond, right, has has um, Spectre and Smirsh. Right, exactly. They they have to always have somebody, right? Mm -hmm. And it's. What was the latest James Bond ones? They've sort of run out of everybody. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they the did Russian again, generals, yeah. the there's a oh the North Koreans, right? And so run out. So oh now it's our own now it's our own agents, right? That are out of control and loose, like Julian Assange style monsters, right? So there's always this sense that um, without a villain. Uh, that it won't work. So what, one of the things that happens in this book is there's a new villain, right? It's the aliens, the Syrians. Yeah, they come really late. <laughs> you and uh, what kind of screen time do they get? Yeah, uh, yeah, almost zero. nothing. I don't think we get one word out of their mouths, right? We get no. a description. No, That's wait, what well. I was really missing. That I was really like at the end, just like, oh, I want to see these aliens playing the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny that it's not there because um, I think one trick he missed is that he could have had it be more of a more of a sense that there's no aliens that it's it's a fake. Oh, mm-hmm. the old the old idea that some people came up with that what, exactly. what we need to unite the world is a is oh, a fake alien been... invasion. Oh, that'd be great. I, I know some science writers came up with that idea way back when. But yeah, yeah, he he missed a trick with that. I think he did, and the the thing is, is we get we still get that today, right? It's it's um for a long time it was Cuba, right? <laughs> then we had um uh it was the Iranians, right? <laughs> and then uh, now it's ISIS, right? These are not existential threats, not in the way that Russia is, um, but the way the United States deals with Russia today, they treat it like it's it's less of a worry then you know there's no no real polite um yeah we need to be careful on this because you know let's have meetings and um play golf and 
you know, spend time at Camp David. We don't get any sense of that anymore. No. Everybody's just throwing sort of dirty looks at everyone else. Mm-hmm. So we, and, we push, they push, and so you wind up with them doing stuff in Ukraine and we threatening to make more states exactly. than NATO. And yeah, and then there is not, there's no, none of those 80 summits anymore. No, and there's, uh, I mean, has the existential threat of nuclear weapons gone down? No, no. They, they, they have enough nukes to hit Minneapolis, Vancouver, New York, Washington, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, Los yeah. Angeles, and all the rest. Don't forget and, me, <laughs> no. <And> Marissa. <laughs> you were safe in New Zealand. Now you're. Safe. <laughs> it's 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 crazy that the the politics of of the of the public have have changed. Whereas the theoretical danger is exactly the same or greater, especially yeah. when when you're not having those, you know, friendly meetings and handshakes and uh, we're going to work together on this after you have those threatening uh, uh, public speeches. There, the, It also reminded me of, you know, when remember when uh, Snowden first sort of appeared on the news and uh-huh. such. Right. When Greenwald's on TV talking about this interview that he's going to give, uh, you know, he's going to let let happen. And we see that that as soon as that happened. Right. There was the the machine of outrage in the government sort of is uh, he's a traitor and he should be blah, 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 and right. A whole bunch of people talking heads on TV, all sort of cogs. Right. Telling mm-hmm. what needs to happen. Uh, how to feel about this. Um, but behind the scenes, that's not really what's going on, right? They aren't like, yes, he's a traitor. No, they say, shit, how are we going to solve this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I, yeah, I mean, I, I've been talking about this for years. We're going to get in trouble. This is how rebellions happen, right? People, you can't just flout the law for years and years. But they can't say that. They can't go on TV and say that, right? Because they're they're holding the reins of power, and if it looks like they're not, then everything comes crumbling down. Mm-hmm. And so the the certainly G Febs of this world or F Febs of this world, uh, maybe it's T Febs. I can't remember. No, it's F Febs and Fungi. Yeah. Right. Need to get into those councils. Right. Need to get uh, onto into government so that they can join the ranks of those in the know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. keep making the things that keep us safe, right? So that congressmen can keep voting for creation of more tanks, even though the army's saying, please, no more tanks. We got enough tanks. We need other things, but the tanks still need to be made. <laughs> but Congress still appro- keeps approving funding for making of tanks, right? Yeah, and useless jets and whatnot. Yeah. But uh, specifically tanks. I mean, when was the last time there was a tank war? Right. No, World War Two. No. World well, War Two was the last tank war. No. 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 Um. The. Uh, well, they used them in Desert they Storm. They used them in Desert Storm, especially sure. the first one where they where they had pretty large uh, tank uh, battalions going into Iraq, going into Kuwait and Iraq. So, but yeah, other than that, that's the last great use of tanks the U.S. has had. Right, and it's the. I mean, they they brought tanks to every war. There's no question, but they have a lot of them. Right. It's not like uh, uh, there's a lot of T-90s rolling up into uh, Washington or uh, into Berlin or any of the places that 
that would justify their use, right? The Battle of Kursk is long over, and they still need to make keep making more tanks and maybe maybe even sell them or something. I don't know. But the important part is we've got to keep making them. Mm-hmm. And that war economy um, turned into fashion fashionable satire in this book is is easily recognizable if you if you squint in the right way and i i didn't get that squint at the beginning i i was i thought it was just a weird another weird sort of half dystopian future with a lot of acronyms to memorize so i think maybe having a little more knowledge about what the book was going to be about would have helped me yeah clue in earlier and i would have enjoyed it more well yeah. on, on on that war satire consider philip k dick would have considered the hummer perfectly a perfect outgrowth of the ideas in this book. yeah because i think yeah that's that's a war vehicle turned civilian use that's plowshared right there yep yep and notice that in the first generation right the one that schwarzenegger gets um he's got the the real hummer and then uh, a few other people get the real Hummer, and then they say, "No, no, no, you can't really drive it." I mean, they're not—they're not designed for public roads. They're designed for off-off roads, and they—they don't have any real—you know, there's no cup holders. So, the—the uh, <laughs> the company that makes Hummer gets, you know, sort of sells its contract to the design to GM, and GM keeps the label, and then they come out with the H2 and the H3, and by the time you get to the H3, it just looks like another. Or maybe all the other cars look like the Hummer. Maybe that's what really happened, right? Is that the sports utility vehicle came to dominate in it, it did become plowshared because nobody drives the real Hummer anymore, right? They all drive the just a big ass wrapper mobile with the big, you know, spinning wheels and the red color. It's not really a military. Exactly. They're giant owls that. That tell you about your life. <laughs> well, what does it hold? Just cigarettes, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they never go but, off road, or almost never go off road. There was a bit of penultimate truth in here too, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I think he was writing them at the same time. Yeah, it said he was writing penultimate truth, this, and um, the one we just did recently. Is it called uh, Three Stigmata? Mm. Oh, okay. All at the same time. So this one was interesting with that stuff you were saying because it's almost it's almost inside out with the um the main character he's so worried about like creating this delusion of war where they're making all these weapons where there's no need for them um that he starts thinking like that the answer is to actually make these weapons and actually put all the people in danger so at least they're not being mm-hmm. fooled. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have to create mad yeah, it so it's kind of like a um, uh, yeah. I know. I agree. I, I, th- I think about it. Like if 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 you treat Russia disdainfully, you're more likely to to get into a war. We need to have we need to have a real sense of reality, not fake reality. Yeah, that was the question in this book, right? Like, what's better? Is it better for them to have a fake reality or to actually be he, like he went too far. He's like, well then the answer must be to actually put them in danger. So at least it's real. <laughs> put, yeah. Put the population in, in danger of these weapons. Yeah. If you say, if you say to your kid, um, everything is good and light and nothing can hurt you. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to get hit by the first car that comes by. Yeah. Right? Cause they don't know to look both ways and that there's real dangers out there and that cancer is going to get them. 
um, if they start smoking, and it'll probably get them anyways because everybody gets cancer. <laughs> it's like, oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. But that procedure gives you a, a, you know, a real sense of reality, and you're more, you're less consumer oriented. I yeah. Guess. I guess, and I think it was like a little bit of a the boy who cries wolf story as well, in a way, right? Because the when the aliens actually do attack, then the government turns to their fake weapons designers and they're like, right. Oh, can yeah. you make, can you actually make those weapons now? And they're like, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, we cannot. Right. We have no what idea the, what we're doing. Well, I can't even remember what the, oh, some of the, there was the, the zap gun, which he puts, assembles and then zaps everybody on the, the council. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. With, certainly. That's an actual real weapon that works. Yeah, that's what the one the, the demolicularizer or something, or right? <laughs> the the quote unquote zap gun of the title. Um, what was I, the one? Um, Surly G. Fibs is uh, fantasizing about. He wants the one where you can oh. turn people into rugs. <laughs> uh, there was a uh, that's a that's a shout out to an earlier story. Um, there's the devolution weapon. Oh yeah, there, that was, oh yeah, yeah, the devolution gun, which is another book, right? <laughs> Where everybody's devolving when they go to the psychotherapist and they, oh, yeah. they evolve yeah. or devolve, right? Making <laughs> people into primordial slime. Yep. Um, uh, the the rug reference is a re- uh, is um is a reference to Colony. Um, you guys got to read this story if you haven't read it. It's really funny. Um, the the humans from Earth are uh, exploring for new places to set down uh, human colonies. One of, one of the things I always like about uh, Philip K. Dick's stories with rocket ships full of humans from Earth is they always set down and they look around and they start smoking and throwing their cigarette butts and, and beer cans all around. <laughs> and one of the guys on the crew is like, God, this is, we're going to ruin this place. They always say that. <laughs> because they're, it's like a park, right? Philip K. Dick goes to the park and he sees all the oh. beer cans mm-hmm. and cigarette butts and then, oh, I like this play. Oh, humans. So, so annoying. Anyways, they, they go to this beautiful planet. Everything's beautiful. And then, uh, they don't know that everything on the planet is sort of a, uh, a hidden, uh, shapeshifter. And they get onto the spaceship. Um, and the guy goes for a shower and he comes out of the shower. Um, and the towel starts trying to kill him. <laughs> and- <laughs> starts drying himself off and then he starts choking and then <laughs> the rug grabs his feet and then it rolls him up or something and and then he tries to explain to the captain um and there's a essay by uh, robert silverberg about this story that's just awesome and he titles the essay um the line from the story which is i trusted the rug completely around your house and you say hmm yes i trust my <laughs> chair not to collapse under me and i trust i trust my bed not to try and strangle me this is the ultimate in paranoia yeah uh Kadek says right is that it's not that you think your boss is out to get you it's that you think your boss's phone is out to get you <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna strangle me or it's gonna call me up and say i'm fired <laughs> oh that, that that reminds me of a twilight zone episode that uh, a new twilight zone episode where the guy i think it's a guy takes a Takes a takes an apartment. The apartment next door. The phone is ringing and ringing and ringing, and he, and it's an empty apartment. He can't stand. He finally gets into breaks into the apartment to try to shut off this phone, 
and the phone does come and strangle him. Mm. But yeah, it's 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 that the domest that's domestic sort of annoyance of the endlessly ringing phone that you can't escape. Uh, those no, those stories just can't happen anymore. That sounds like a Richard Matheson story. Yeah, it almost, I think it was almost certainly a Richard Matheson story. I can look it up. I don't think definitely. I've seen that episode, but yeah, it's, I like it the eighties. It was the eighties Twilight Zone. There's That's so many good. Twilight Zones now. I, I used to be able to say there's the old and then there's the new. The new being the one in the eighties, but then there was like there's been like two more since. So mm-hmm. I have to specify which Twilight Zone. Really I think the 80s Twilight Zone might even be better than the original. The original's got a lot of good stuff in it, but the 80s I th- was consistently good, I found. Well, at least for a couple of the seasons. But that is, uh, there's no Philip K. Dick episodes in any of the Twilight Zones, unfortunately. No, they, they, they missed a bet not adapting any Philip K. Dick. Um, yeah. One thing I didn't like about this novel was the last chapter with Lars and Lilo and 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 that whole debate about, oh am I go am I going to kill myself or am I going to wait to try to go back in time and <laughs> see see my mistress who who who's dead and he gets the pills and and, and, and Leo seems to be cur- to encourage him. Oh yeah, you should kill yourself but rather than pining and then it's like no don't kill yourself I'm gonna stay with you. it it I didn't like that chapter at all it, it brought down the end the is that uh, chapter 33 the last one you said uh, no. 32 32 i didn't yeah. like it at i didn't like that whole resolution at all it felt very back and forth am i going to kill myself or not I, uh, these are just conversations philip Dick has with his wife right you know like they are seriously um he he transcribes so much of his life i think into his books that it's i mean the fact that he goes to the other side of the world to find a uh, the other, he go, was it Berlin? No, he, he, goes, he, he goes. He goes. He goes to Iceland to meet her. Iceland. Okay, right. So he goes to the other side of the world to meet this woman who who immediately tries to kill him. Yep. And then then he said, "No, we can work together." Yeah. <laughs> well, I think. It's like nuts. Yeah, I think that's what that last chapter is him working out that stuff because did you notice um, his mistress, his main girl in this novel was actually kind of awesome. Like super smart, loving woman who who's kind of he, the character just adored her, and then somehow he still fell in love with the teenager that he he'd never even seen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, it was just like that typical oh. Philip K. Dick thing. Like I've got it so good, you know. They're a little bit crazy, but they're both crazy together. But then yeah. um, he falls in love with this teenager, and then he ends up with her in that last chapter, pining for the woman that he this just kind of been written out of the story. Um. And decides to kill himself, like, without, like, <laughs> barely even thinking about it. Just like, yeah, that's true. The I'm going gonna... to. The suicide ideation or discussion is is sort of more prominent in this period, I think. I don't know. It seems that way. Yeah. Uh, one of the wives is suicidal. Philip Kiddick's suicidal. There's a lot of, yeah. About suicide. He is an emotional sponge, though, right? So when. If somebody comes to him and says, you know, suicide's not that bad. I- I'm thinking about doing it. And he says, well, you know, there are advantages. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, there's no advantages. Well, first of all, there. And then, you know, he sort of just goes spinning off on that. And I mean, one of the things you, you get when you read a Philip K. Dick book is it's almost all dialogue. There's very little. I mean, every once in a while, there's going to be a, you know, the first paragraph. It will be a... Uh, 
a description of some situation and somebody's emotions. And, you know, you get a few acronyms here and there, but the rest, uh, the majority of any Philip K. Dick novel is, is dialogue. Mm -hmm. Just people in rooms, you know, over the kitchen table or some other table, uh, having a conversation, going through the etymology of something, uh, talking about, uh, Bach or, uh, and so you get that, um, yeah, the plot's going to unravel in the way it is, but it's going to be through that, that, uh, so yeah, I, uh, how would you, how would you rank this? Cause we, we've been going through sort of the, uh, novels and I can't remember which one I said was my least favorite recently. And Marissa, you were really, uh. You really enjoyed it, but um, we've done a lot of Philip K. Dick novels. I would rank this l- pretty low, um, but I still enjoyed it. Where would you rank it? Is it in the middle? Uh, for me, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to rank it pretty high. I'm pretty high. Uh, yeah, huh. I, I think it's one of my favorite ones. Interesting. I really, I really like this one. It, um, it's like nowhere near you know, androids or anything like that, but it's in the top half. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I, yeah. I put this in the top half, maybe not quite as high really? as Marissa, especially because that last, that, that last chapter really kind of spoiled things a bit. And it does take a while to get going to understand that, okay, this is a satire and you have to go with the satire. I mean, I mean, I mean, we, 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 we've, we've listened to a, some real real pot boilers for Philip K. Dick, to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest. Uh, I mean, the Man Who Jape, the Cosmic Puppets, they have good stuff in them. Mm-hmm. But Plans of the Alphane Moon. Yeah, Plans of the Alphane Moon. But I mean, I mean, it's it's not the Man in the High Castle. It's not Galactic Pot Healer. It's not Three Stigmata. Mm. It's it's more like a Crack in Space or Martian Time Slip or Grain Players of Titan. Which hey. are, don't you denigrate <laughs> which, which, which are good. They're not. Martian Time Slip is awesome. He's, he's saying it's good. <laughs> they're not the best okay dick ever. But, no. But it's not bad. I, I was with you until you said Martian Time Slip. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not the very best, but it's among them. Yeah, it's not the very best, but. What, I think it's. What, the, sorry, Harry Uncle. So. I mean, we we have some big ones coming up to really up to uh, to yardstickness against, but it's mm-hmm. but it's but it's not on the other hand, say Deuce Ira, which is just a muddled mess. Yes, with redeeming features. <laughs> well, every every full has something. To <laughs> yeah, take we have away to put that caveat it. pretty much on yeah. everything. Yeah, I mean, every, every yeah, every every full story and novel has redeeming features. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this project. Indeed. But it, it's not a. Even, I mean, yeah, I mean, Tibor McMaster's is an interesting character. Okay, but it's really just a series of Ignatius. He's traveling, traveling mm-hmm. across this blasted landscape and not much else. Mm-hmm. And, and this novel is a little more coherent than that because he knows he's writing satire and he's going for that. But could it have been set up better in the front matter? Yeah. And yeah. could he have gone... The, oh, am I going to kill myself or go back in time thing? Yeah. If you take away, if you fix those two things, then you could bump this up significantly in the rankings for me. But those things what, drag it down. What did you guys think of the narrator? Because I, 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 at first I was blaming the narrator. 
Um, and I don't think that maybe I was justified in doing that. Um, I don't think it was bad. Um, but I don't know if this book uh, translates that well into audio. Like, I think I agree. Yeah, I yeah. Think there's a lot of wordplay that you can't see. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you actually. If you'd read, if you started reading it at all, because um, yeah. I was a little bit lost as well when I started listening to it. But then I went back to the start and started reading it, and I was mm-hmm. just laughing so much. Like, I thought it was the funniest thing. I was like, how did I miss this in the audio? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of in similar vein, the Demolished Man, which. Works, sure. works very, which works poorly as an audiobook and only okay as an ebook and best as a print book just because of the nature of how he leaves things out on the page, how he uses typography and fonts and wordplay. Yeah. It, it works best as a print book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is an ebook. Okay, it looks ungainly. And as an audiobook, you miss half that stuff in The Demolished Man. And mm-hmm. I can't recommend people use the audiobook if they have access to the to the print book. And this, I think this novel is possibly suffering from the same sort of problem that it works better in pr- print. I mean, not every audiobook works. Not every book works as an audiobook. It's and then, it's uh, yeah. And I think some work much, you know, sort of I think there's a lot of writers who would work better as audiobooks because they just write too much. And this audiobook you can just hit times two. Right. Almost never, ever do a times two speed on a Philip K. Dick book. Oh God, no. Unless I'm, you know, rushing to finish it or something, but, mm-hmm. um, because it's, it's not that it's dense. It's that, uh, I think that you, he, he doesn't, he doesn't put in filler generally. Some, I, I was reading reviews on Goodreads and, uh, somebody said, you know, there, maybe there, there's a little filler in here. I don't think that there is any filler. I think there's just sort of digression, yeah. digression. Um, and there's a little less digression than there is in a lot of other stuff. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought this one was quite well written. Um, huh. And some of the some parts were just like really beautiful. Some parts were so funny. But I was I ended up reading it sometimes with the audio on at the same time because hmm. uh, I was I dismissed too much when I first started listening to the audio. You are reading along. I was I read reading along. along. Hmm. But um, I, th- I don't. It's the one I, I'm gonna. I want to buy a print copy now. I want to like lend it to my husband because I think you know he loves comedy. I think it was so funny. Like even that last scene that you didn't like, Paul. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> I was just like, I mean, maybe it's better on the page than on than than in the audio. Maybe. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it does. I think one of the things that happens as a narrator is you have to make choices, right? And then you have to stick with those choices. But as a reader on reading the page and you see concomity, right? Um, you, it, it's just a sound until you see how it's, how it's spelled. And then you start thinking about why is it spelled that way and what does it mean? Yeah. And then you get an explanation later on, but you, a lot of, a lot of the spelling, I mean, I mean the guy's name is Lars Powder Dry. Right. And keeping your powder dry yep. is a thing, right? Which is kind of the whole thing for the whole book, right? Keeping your powder dry means um, prepare for war. Don't don't uh, go off uh, go off half cocked, right? Mm-hmm. It means you know you know be reasonable, sort of, but also get your get your weapons, <laughs> um, or have your weapons ready. If, if thou would have peace, prepare thyself for war. It's a it's a Roman axiom. 
well, yeah, but they, they don't talk about gunpowder. But certainly, it's it's one of those things that you've got um, you've got a lot of that going on in here, and I think a lot of it is lost in the audio, and yeah. that's not because of the narrator's faults, which I I was at first thinking was it is just not he's just not dynamic enough. But I think you're, it's just a tough tougher situation. Yeah. Uh, he, he also but, puts so much like little ph- uh, philosophical ideas and things in there that sometimes you want to just like pause over it and then you realize like the humor right. and you know and you just miss it if you're just reading quickly. I think I think you're best with a paper book on this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's uh, there's really I think an error in not having the subtitle because subtitles in the original paper book why do they drop it? Because they're lazy ass fucks who can't <laughs> bother. They can't be bothered to give a f- cover for a reasonable, interesting science fiction book. You know, that's called the Zap Gun. And you look at, the, I mean, what the hell are they thinking? Because the cover for the Zap Gun in the modern paper edition, it's like it's just it has nothing to do with Zap Guns, and it's just terrible. And <laughs> and drop the subtitle that's in the very first paper book edition of the book mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. stupid I, I it's in there for a reason he put it in it, it, nobody else wrote that for him yeah right it wasn't it wasn't editorial introduction it wasn't um to be dropped for no reason they reason they drop it is the same reason they drop dedications because they're lazy ass fucks who can't <laughs> talk. right rent seeking lazy ass fucks yeah right <laughs> if well, Philip K. Dick Estate has li- ever listened to an episode of the SFF Audio podcast, yes. I, they just got offended. Yeah, <laughs> you just <laughs> you just put it all out there. But it's true. Mm-hmm. They can't sue me over that because they are lazy ass fucks. Come on. <laughs> I, I, I seriously would have enjoyed the book a lot more had I known I was getting a Swifty and satire from the beginning. Yeah, and he put it in there so that I would know that. Yes, I mean so, sometimes obfuscating what your book is actually doing is a bad thing, and in this case, totally. And that's why the uh, having the cover being uh, look like nothing is also obfuscating, right? The the whole premise of this book is that the publisher of a of you know like a competitor to the the um, lurid Ace books is trying to make something even more lurid, right? And you see the original. <laughs> original cover art it's a some dude who's not even in the book with a zap gun <laughs> a purple background and you know yellow and it's all sort of you know super it's the word for it lurid is this the one uh, with the dude he's like pointing the gun or yeah. his finger up his nose or something no no that's that's a later edition the first one is just it's just a, a dude sort of pointing it off to the right of the book oh, maybe okay. to the the next book over on the shelf you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's saying buy this book. It's got a it's got a zap gun in it. I know, it's the publisher cool. knows what he's doing. He he says my people want to read a book like this. And Philip K. Dick says, well, I got to write, and I can write books about zap guns. Here, here's my idea. And he did. And then they subsequently have disowned every idea that he's had by by deleting the meaning from the from the art. Mm-hmm. Uh, going off on it. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 we 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 hit the Jesse button, and and, 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 it's, and it's a valid point. Uh, obfusc- you get Jesse when you hit the Jesse button. <laughs> obfuscating the artist's intent is 
leads to that yeah consumer that unhappiness. It does. Um, what, what I want to talk about the um the man in the maze. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, it's really cool that did uh, there's wub fur in here, but I, I didn't think it said wub like, did it? Maybe it did say wub like at one point. Um, for uh, the little creature. Yeah, yeah little, it said wub like. Really yeah, cool. okay. it said uh, yeah, he's yeah, yeah wub like bear like. Yeah, wubs are from Venus in this world. Ah, uh, see, I think that I mean you can't really go consistent with all his worlds, right? Because right. They're like um, parallel. They're like parallel reflections and shadows, not yeah. one single universe. Yeah, because wubs are in the very first story. Wubs are on Mars, but they're not from there, or maybe they are, but they're everybody knows about them. The wubs are sort of in every <laughs> every uh, universe, right? With every Philip K. Dick universe, wubs are hiding hiding behind the things. When they don't show up in the text, they're still there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because um, I, I thought that that was interesting that um, he, you sympathize with the little creature, right? You press the button to make it uh, happier or, or less happy. And no matter what happens, um, you get sucked into the experience. Mm-hmm. This is, um, I think it goes right back. We've done this a bunch of times, but talking about the games, how Philip K. Dick gets obsessed with games, game players of Titan. Titan yep. Like, yeah. Um, and I think it is just, you know, uh, Philip K. Dick is in the living room playing Monopoly or Candyland with his kids. And they're enjoying it. He's sucked right into it. And his wife's in the kitchen saying, dinner's ready. And the kids sort of leave and Philip K. Dick's still playing. <laughs> He's sort of stuck. He gets he gets sucked right into the story. And um, he is empathizing with the little man uh, running around the board yeah, uh, never able to escape. I think yeah. I think there's a metaphor there because you know exactly. Phil Kiddick wanting to transcend what his life was, try to try to write contemporary novels, try to be a big success, and yeah. is he still just running around that maze as best he can? With obstacles keep throwing up again and again, and he keeps going. But so I think yeah, I think it's he's the 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 poor little wub in the maze is is definitely a metaphor for Dick's own career in some ways. Yeah, and also I saw it not just as about games, but about his fiction as well. Like the, his whole job is to like make you empathize with these mm-hmm. people who are trapped in mm-hmm. these like literally mazes that he writes, <laughs> where the you know the goalposts change and everything goes wrong for them, and he's trying to trap your mind into this world. And maybe he is disintegrating our minds a little bit with his inconsistencies. And <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just happened to be on this page. Uh, it says, Packard wound up. Uh, S.G. Febs fell victim to the empathic, telepathic, whatever it is called, maze, and shortly succumbed, in fact, in record time, beating the smallest period established by voluntary prisoners from West Block, Federal Pen on Callisto. S.G. Febs, he declared, into the mic in conclusion, is now in Wallingford Clinic, where he will remain indefinitely. <laughs> it's yeah. like, that's uh, Philip K. Dick committing his wife, um, because she didn't like him spending all his yeah. time playing with the kids, right? And then and she's, I'm going to kill myself. Well, that's why you're in the, the federal pen or you're in the, uh, the yeah. institute. Yeah. Yeah. It was after he did all that too. The, the clinic, right? It's, it's that <laughs> everything that shows up in his fiction shows is taken from life. Yeah. Not news. It's from 
literally from his own household. Yeah, I would love to know. Oh, sorry, go. Go, no, go ahead. You first. I was just going to say I'd love to know who Surly G. Febs is based on, if that's like someone he – because that has to be the most arrogant, hilarious character he's written, I think. <laughs> like, and uh, this is exactly why you need a Romana Clef sort of thing at the beginning, a, a key. Uh, uh, who is he tuckerizing? You know what tuckerizing is, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, but it's it's uh it's a thing, right? There there are these books, um, uh, Inferno by Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell, mm-hmm. right? Um, has a whole bunch of of science fiction writers at a science fiction convention, um, and they're all show, they all are there, right? They're all <laughs> they are all they all could be um Tuckerized or no. That could be de detuckerized so um, that you would know who they are. Sorry, what what does it mean? I don't know what it means. Tuckerized? When you put somebody you know or a version thereof of them into a fictional work. It, because uh, okay. because uh, Wilson Tucker was a science fiction author in the 50s, I think, who did this a lot. So his name has become the verb for doing this. And oh. as Jesse said, Niven and Pornell did this a lot. They did it in Inferno. They did it in Footfall. In football, we did we did a show in football. I was, I so, so, it was yeah. one of the first shows I did with you guys. In football, aliens land. And so what the government does is they round up a bunch of science fiction authors to try to war game. How do we respond to the aliens? And all the science fiction authors, they were, are Tuckerized versions of real science fiction authors at the time. Huh. You, you, you can map them one to – that's – okay, that's Highland. That's Le Guin. That's, that's Niven himself. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's something – Something that you know you lose over time, right? With an old book, right. is that you've you've lost the context that it you know when you when you pick up uh, a, a modern novel today, um, you can see the Trump analog very easily, or whoever it is, right? Whoever's in the news. Um, but when you're we're talking about when did this book come out? 1967. Okay, is that before or after JFK was assassinated? Okay, it was after. Was it before RFK was assassinated? Um, it's around the same time, right? It's like you lose the the little details of that context, and you sort of need to keep whatever material is accreted to it mm-hmm. uh, over the over the period of time. There's mm-hmm. a novel by um, Isaac Asimov uh, called Murder at the ABA, uh, and it's not a uh, science fiction novel. But I did a review of it um, because it's Asimov uh, for my website years and years ago. And I uh, I did a little bit of that. The main one of the main characters is named Darius Dust, Darius Dust and dry as dust. (laughs) (laughs) His writing is dry as dust. Um, Is that Isaac Asimov satirizing himself? Yes, it is. He put himself in the book, right? Um, and the guy who calls him Darius Dust, right? His name is Darius Dust, the character's name. But the guy who calls him that in the book is the analog for Harlan Ellison. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? And if you think about Isaac Asimov's writing, it is dry, right? Mm-hmm. It's not rich and contextualized with uh, juice, juicy stuff. It's very dry. Um, it's still good, but it's Darius Dust. <laughs> uh-huh. And so these sort of uh, analogs that I mean, it's really obvious with some of them. But I, I was listening to some of the people on the council. They, one of the people got zapped. I think had a name that was 
familiar. And if I had had the paper book, I could have like, this is one of the things that's also cool about really old paper books is that you might not be the first owner and someone else may have made notes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Know how that happens. They say this is that person and you can disregard it. Sometimes I see a lot of people seem to be insane. Like if you've owned a lot of old paper books, every once in a while you'll see like copious notes on every page, underlining things that seem random. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, this guy's fucking nuts. Well, it's easy to do with a dick novel. I mean, you right here it would be really helpful (laughs) because you're making those connections is hard, right? He's 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 sort of not helping you in that he's he's just rushing through it but yeah that's that's why is that book by um and dick is so good mm. because she really decodes so many of his books with his with his real life and you know which characters are who and what was happening in his life mm-hmm. even though it's really badly written <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit messy that's, but that's, it's, okay. it's still great This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Why is is there a cab truck on the street outside my apartment? I don't know. It It doesn't have a trailer attached to it. It's just the front. It has to ruin your podcast. Apparently. Spying on you. <laughs> We're getting real on a Philip K. Dick yeah, mood here. Yeah, we are. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Ready? Ready.